You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Roger R. Jackson, a retired professor of Asian Studies and Religion, who has published many articles on philosophy, ritual, meditative practices, and poetry of Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. He has written or co-edited several books, including Is Enlightenment Possible? And his latest book, Mind Seen Mind, Mahamudra and the Galuk Tradition of Tibetan Buddhism from Wisdom Publications. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Music on this show is from a CD called Add Colors to My Sunset Sky by Danish harpist Trina Opsal. This piece is called Leaving on a Thursday Morning. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. Great to be here on this uh, Lunar New Year. 
This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Roger R. Jackson, the John W. Nason Professor Emeritus of Asian Studies and Religion at Carleton College in Minnesota, where he taught the religions of South Asia and Tibet. He has published many articles on the philosophy, ritual, meditative practices, and poetry of Indian and Tibetan Buddhism, and has, co- has written or co-written or co-edited several books, including The Wheel of Time, Kala Chakra in Context, Is Enlightenment Possible?, Tibetan Literature, Studies in Genre, Buddhist Theology, Critical Reflections by Contemporary Buddhist Scholars, Tantric Treasures, Three Collections of Mystical Verse from Buddhist India, and Mind Seen Mind, Mahamudra and the Galuk Tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, recently published by Wisdom Publications. He is the past editor of the Journal of International Association of Buddhist Studies and is currently co-editor of the Indian International Journal of Buddhist Studies. So, Roger Jackson, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thanks very much. I appreciate the invitation. Well, we're delighted to have you, and we will start... Um, as we do with uh, first-time guests, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to youth and childhood and invite you um, from those recollections to identify any particular moments, experiences, etc., that in retrospect you would identify as, as harbingers or some things that were pointing toward the direction your career and life would take. Okay, well, I, I grew up uh, actually a good part of my early life in Europe. My father was a foreign correspondent for UPI and then for Time magazine. And so by the time I moved to America at the age of seven, I had uh, um, really never never been on these shores except for brief visits now and again. Uh, so I had, I had wanderlust, I think, built in from the very beginning. Um, I ended up uh, though in, in my high school years in a suburb of New York City uh, and, you know, at that time began to develop a, a real interest in a variety of different intellectual and, and spiritual and political movements. Um, you know, I sometimes say that I, you know, I was sort of a Marxist at 14 and, a, and an existentialist at 15 and a you know, a sort of frustrated romantic poet at 16. But uh, eventually I, I, I did begin to, to focus in somewhat on an interest in Asian religions and in part living right near New York City, which uh, was, of course, a, a hotbed for all sorts of intellectual, spiritual and, and political currents. I, I began to get exposed a little bit to, to what was in my area. Um, in any case, I went off to college at Wesleyan University in Connecticut and uh, originally was involved in, in a sort of a, a program there called the College of Letters, which was uh, intensive study and discussion of the Western tradition um, through, through literature, through philosophy, through history. Um, but at, at some point, this being the 60s, of course, uh, I've I experimented some with psychedelics and had an experience that, at the time, convinced me that I had been com- become completely enlightened. Um, and, uh, <laughs> it, being, it being probably the 60s. Not, not unknown to, <laughs> to some of your listeners. Um, and, and in fact, you know, for months I, I didn't get the slightest bit depressed. I, I had a, a completely optimistic view of things. And then, of course, eventually I began to 
realized, oh, maybe this wasn't it. <laughs> and uh, what I did determine from this, uh, on the basis of this experience, was that, <clears throat> A, I didn't want to major in the Western tradition anymore, that I was going to become a religion major and focus on Eastern traditions, and that, B, I wanted to, in fact, um, sort of reproduce, if, if possible, the kind of experience I'd had with psychedelics through the methods of meditation and study of Asian traditions. So, you know, to make a, a long story short, um, after, after graduating in 1972, my girlfriend and I went off, as many people did in, in those years, uh, to the Bay Area. Uh, we lived there for um, close to a year, uh, worked for the post office, which was actually quite lucrative, uh, and saved up enough money to travel all the way to Asia. Uh, we, we went overland, we hitchhiked through Europe, basically, and then went overland to India, um, you know, sort of wandered a bit from ashram to ashram. We didn't have any, you know, particular tradition we were devoted to or intent on being part of. Uh, but eventually we made our way to Nepal, did some trekking there, and then eventually did a month-long meditation retreat at a monastery called Kopan, just outside Bodhnath, which is just outside Kathmandu. Uh, this was a, a monastery that was run by two English-speaking Tibetan lamas, and they they put us through <laughs> quite a quite a, the set of experiences, a combination of very challenging teachings about topics like uh, the possibility of enlightenment, uh, the, the reality of past and future lives, uh, various meditation techniques were taught, uh, and so forth and so on. I found it extremely difficult and challenging and nearly bailed out uh, a couple of times. Uh, but my, my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, uh, was she was sort of committed from, from the get-go, and so oddly enough, kind of perhaps ironically, I, I stayed with this meditation retreat because I was afraid that if I didn't, I'd lose her. So uh, anyway, at, at, by the end of that retreat, we had shaved our head. Uh, we, we continued our studies in India um, for, uh, or, or in Nepal for a little bit, traveled to India, uh, especially to Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama was living in exile, studied sort of all through the summer of, of 1974 at the library he had established there. Uh, eventually went back to Nepal for another month-long retreat and a little bit more trekking as well. And at the end of this, we'd been gone from the U.S. for a year and a quarter. We, uh, we'd pretty much run out of money, and I decided that this was, a, a, you know, this was a life-changing experience for me and that I wanted to be involved in the study of Buddhism uh, in as many ways as I could. And, I, you know, having a slightly intellectual cast of mind um, and, and being interested in the prospect of studying this in graduate school, I heard that there was a Tibetan monk who was, in fact, a teacher of the two lamas at Kopan, who was a professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And so shortly after we returned to America, I applied to the program was accepted. We moved to Madison, and at that time, this was the middle of 1975, uh, we helped this this uh, Lama uh, and Professor Geshe Zopa to found a center in Madison that now is called Deer Park Buddhist oh, okay. Center. 
And so I, I was, I sort of went through both graduate school, you know, struggling with Sanskrit and Tibetan and, you know, various ways of, of learning to translate Buddhist texts at the same time that we were helping to get running this uh, increasingly important Buddhist center. And so for the whole time we were in Madison, we had sort of parallel tracks in, in those terms. Um, I, I eventually did a dissertation at the University of Wisconsin that, that had the title, Is Enlightenment Possible?, part of which eventually turned into a book which basically examines rational arguments by Buddhist philosophers that attempt to prove that enlightenment is possible, that past and future lives exist, uh, that karma operates the way Buddhists say it does, and so forth. Um, and uh, eventually, when I finished my dissertation, I realized, oh, now what? <laughs> and uh, so I, I sort of tried my hand at teaching. Uh, I taught for a year at Carleton, loved it. Uh, it reminded me of Wesleyan, actually. Um, and then went on to sort of shorter stints at the University of Michigan, Fairfield University of Connecticut, and eventually uh, came back to Carleton, where I spent pretty much the, the next 30 years uh, in, in involved in the uh, uh, teaching of, of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam for a while, though I'm not anywhere near an Islamicist, um, and a variety of courses, uh, you know, on methods in the study of religion, mysticism, and so forth, and, and, and so on. And, uh, uh, you know, I was involved, like, like many academics are, in conferences and publications, and uh, brought out a number of different books, either on my own or in consultation and collaboration with other people, retired in 2016 and, you know, have continued to teach here and there at, at various institutions, both Buddhist centers and uh, institutions of higher learning, and, you know, sort of continue my life here, uh, which, you know, I'm, the, the Twin Cities area is actually very rich in, in uh, Buddhist traditions, and so there's, uh, there's no lack of, uh, of centers one can go to, teachers one can associate with, and uh, that, anyway, that more or less bring, brings me brings us briefly up to date. I appreciate that. That's a that's a uh, a great synopsis of a um, uh, a complicated engagement yeah. with Buddhism, if nothing Indeed. else. Well, I, I, anyway, one one thing I want to you know observe, which is that it's it, it's great to hear, and it, it's reflected in the book that um, uh, you're both. Uh, coming from a place of scholarship and practice, which is, um, I think, makes for a much clearer text and, you know, just a clearer exposition style. Um, unlike, I think, earlier academic treatments of Buddhism, which I always kind of think, I think probably in the early part of the uh, 20th century, there was a, more of a tendency to kind of contextualize all religions as a sort of a thing and and uh, <laughs> and analyze it, you know, almost psychologically. So, so, mm -hmm. and and mm -hmm. I, and I also want to reflect. You know, we we spent some time um, reading p portions of um, Mind Seen Mind, and the writing style of that is just remarkably clear. I mean, uh, for for a book that looks very intimidatingly large, <laughs> it actually flows. I mean, it's it's, it's quite amazing. Between you and uh, your editor, I mean, it, it's uh, uh, quite a joy to read and uh, very clear. Well, thank you. Thank so, you. I, I appreciate that. So on, on the on the heel of that uh, um, comment by Stuart, I want to um, just 
um, although although the answer probably lies to a considerable uncertain extent in what you've already told us about, about your career. I, I'm wondering if you, if if now towards, you know, on the on the sunset end of your career, I, I, I assume it's fair to <laughs> say. It was a long, lingering sunset. Anyway, <laughs> well, I mean, and, that, and I would wish it to linger for a long, long time. So, um, uh, and it sounds like you have the vitality and commitment to have that be, be so, uh, all, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, the crick don't rise and all that stuff. But um, right. I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you, if you, have you thought about the overall shape of your career? I mean, if you, if you, if you have thought about the overall shape of your career, and how would you, how would you describe it to somebody, to to someone you met, you know, um, just off the street or something who who right, inquired or, about or in it? and out or in the proverbial elevator. There you go. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I. I often said that I don't necessarily have a, a single trajectory. I, 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 I know colleagues in the field who sort of start with their dissertation and everything flows completely naturally out of that. Um, in, in some ways, the way academics often work is that, oh, somebody suggests this project and then somebody suggests that project, especially if it's a friend of yours or a colleague of yours, and you, you sort of pick up on it. I mean, the, the work that I did in this book on Mahamudra started over 30 years ago. But in the meantime, you know, my friend Jose Cabazon said, oh, let's do, a, let's do a book on Tibetan literature together. And another friend said, oh, let's talk about Buddhist theology. And it, it sort of uh, went a, a little bit like this. But, but on the other hand, if I think about it, probably there are a few themes that, that run through it. Um, through the work I've done, one of them uh, certainly is a is a fundamental concern with what the mind is, um, whether whether in terms of its the, the classical issues of the mind's relation to the body, um, or whether there are deeper sort of metaphysical ways we can understand the mind, and in that sense, really the the earliest I guess significant or at least big book I did. Is enlightenment possible? Is is deeply concerned with these issues and with these rational arguments that attempt to establish uh, the truth of past and future lives, um, and that's a particular set of philosophical analyses. And I, I translated a, a particular Tibetan commentary on a very important uh, Sanskrit text that is a sort of go-to for Tibetan tradition for those who doubt the reality of enlightenment, the reality of past and future lives. And if I think about this most recent book, Mind Seeing Mind, that clearly is about the mind as well, but from a, a different standpoint, uh, from the standpoint of trying to understand what the deepest nature of mind is and techniques for understanding that nature. So certainly one theme that tends to run through my work is this concern with mind in its in its various uh, its various manifestations, and, and of course, you know it's a kind of a truism that that mind is deeply significant for Buddhists and always has been. The the first verse of the Dhammapada, a Pali text that is one of the most celebrated of all Buddhist texts, certainly in the Theravada tradition of Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. This text begins: "All that we are is a result of what we have thought. It is founded on our thoughts. It is made up of our thoughts." And uh, so the, the significance and centrality of mind is, is 
key to Buddhism anyway. So it's not as if I was picking something that other Buddhists and Buddhist scholars don't talk about. It's it's uh, deeply significant there. Otherwise, I would just say that I have a I've had a combination of uh, of an interest in philosophical issues, including sort of comparative philosophy between East and West. But at the same time, I have a a sort of poetic side and a fascination with poetry and the translation of poetry, um, and 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 certainly overall a a general interest. How could I not, given sort of forty plus years of of being who I am, I, I have a deep fascination with the nature and sort of prospects uh, of Buddhism in the West mm-hmm. uh, since I've, I've been witness to at least some of the ways that that has developed since uh, at least the early 70s. Yeah, and, and before we jump into the kind of the meat of the uh, of the topic uh, about Mahamudra and really the nature of mind, um, to get back to your, your kind of uh, focus, is... I was just curious why uh, the why did you scope the book to focus particularly on the Galuk tradition? Was that uh, as, I mean, that, was that a uh, sizing issue because it would just be huge otherwise, or was that? Uh, uh, well, it, it certainly would be huge otherwise, and uh, this this book sort of expanded and contracted and then expanded again in various ways over the course of of thirty years. But no, it's fundamentally because the tradition in which I first studied with those lamas of Copan, the tradition of my mentor and teacher uh, in Wisconsin, Geshe Zopa, uh, is the Gaelic tradition. Okay. So although I studied with teachers in the say the Kagyu, the Nyingma, even the Sakya a little bit, the Gaelic is certainly the tradition. It's a tradition in which uh, that I feel I know the best. And also the, the tradition where I, I feel I have my spiritual home, if you will. Uh, so it, the other the other aspect of this, however, is that because Mahamudra, the Great Seal, this uh, this sort of theory and practice of the nature of mind, is best known for its association with the Kagyu tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, with the teachings of figures like Marpa and Milarepa and Gampopa and the Karmapa Lamas. Uh, but very few, uh, very few people have done much work on the Gaelic tradition of Mahamudra, which is in fact a significant one. It may not have quite the centrality for the Gaelic that it does in the Kagyu, but it's a, it's a kind of largely unexplored tradition. So, although I wasn't the first to write or talk about this, I was uh, going into depth uh, on this tradition in ways that, that nobody really had before. So. Well, got it. And then just, you know, just a, an aside is that uh, though you focus there, uh, a lot of the material, you know, you, you have a wide range of uh, ex- exposure to the other traditions, and you uh, mention the other traditions in a mm-hmm. very non-sectarian way. So I think that uh, it it didn't it didn't read like a sectarian track by any means. It just is <laughs> that it was just uh, it was interesting to see that you you mentioned uh, everyone from the Kagyu's down to the Jonang, and which is kind of unusual in uh, 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 b- books on uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I think it was in the spirit, actually, of some of the texts that I was reading and translating. Uh, there's a famous passage in the uh, in the sort of root verses or root texts for the Gaelic practice of Mahamudra that that says that all the different traditions, basically, you know, for for those who uh, who are learned and who have uh, meditative experience 
they realize that all these traditions come down to the same point. Well, that's and and so I just want to draw out just a little bit further because you you were a professor, as I understand it, of of Asian uh, studies and religion, and so mm-hmm. and you weren't focused only on Tibetan the the, the various Tibetan traditions. And right. and in fact, your book right. in your book, you you explicitly bring in um, uh, various you know the various other um, Buddhist traditions. Was that mm-hmm. was that for for um, uh, shall we say uh, uh, philosophical completeness or roundness or or um, what it, what how do you how do you relate to I, I mean I, I'm sort of picking up that um, or maybe so, more than sort of picking up that, that the Tibetan tradition is the foundation of your own practice uh, yeah. but then as yeah. a scholar um, and as a teacher um, you've um, explored other um, Buddhist traditions and obviously Hindu as well so I'm, I'm yeah. wondering I'm wondering how that how that all is situated in your mind and your experience yeah. Um, I mean, part of it, as a teacher, particularly at an institution like Carleton, which is solely has undergrad, you need to be able to teach somewhat broadly in whatever your specialty is. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I would offer courses on Tibetan Buddhism, but just as often I would offer for a course on Theravada Buddhism or okay. Mahayana thought or, you know, there were, there were a variety of, of different things that I would do. And I, I think also having the kind of religious studies background I have first at, at Wesleyan as an undergrad, and then, you know, to some degree when I was still in grad school, um, always interested in, in sort of comparative ways of thinking about interesting issues. Um, I tried to, you know, I tried to, to be as reasonably knowledgeable as I could about um, a spectrum of, of different traditions. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the disadvantages of sectarian approaches, whether we're talking about among scholars or among, you know, sort of practitioners at Dharma centers, is that they don't always have a broader picture of, of the way other, you know, people, even, even people in other Tibetan traditions, let alone other Buddhist traditions, let alone other religious traditions, mm-hmm. may actually be wrestling with many of the same issues that come out of their particular focused practice. And so there's the, the, the a section in my book called 16 Questions, uh, sort of is an attempt to, to, to sort of look at the particular issues that have come up in the theory and practice of Mahamudra over many centuries in Tibet and show how those relate to larger patterns in Buddhist societies, and then in religious practices elsewhere in the world as well. And, of course, necessarily the, these discussions are relatively superficial, but I think they do establish that wherever we find religious traditions, there are, there are actually significant and interesting resonances among them. Um, you know, questions about, say, the expressibility of ultimate reality, the place of ethics in, in, in the mystical life, um, you know, whether we're all already divine or enlightened and just don't know it, and so forth and so on. Right. It's a, a, a range of different issues, and I'm sure you guys, given the, the name of this show, are you know, very conversant with these in a, in a broad way as well. 
Well, we've certainly had lots of experience in talking to people from lots of different perspectives on, on this issue, and that's that's one reason why we uh, particularly appreciated, I think, your 16-question chapter that you just referred to. Um, uh, but but I want to ask uh, just one more sort of uh, stepping back question, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, uh, before we get into um, some of the issues that that you've already st- uh, started to talk about, uh, and and that is the question that that I sometimes we've sometimes encountered. Um, it uh, there that there some people will delineate a difference between scholars of a religion and practitioners. Mm-hmm. I'm getting that you would locate yourself as as having both um, elements in your makeup mm-hmm. and your life. How do, how do you... I, I assume you know what I'm talking about here. I do, I do. And so, well, I'd like you then to comment on, on that issue. Yeah. I mean, this is it's not an easy thing, actually. And I, your comment earlier about how earlier in the 20th century, you know, people, people tended to look at religion entirely from the outside, uh, and scholars, in fact, were expected to do that. And I must say that when I went through graduate school, even though my mentor was, in fact, a Buddhist monk, and obviously a, a, a practicing Buddhist, the, the tenor of most of, of what I was taught was that a scholar must be as objective as possible. Now, even in the 70s, nobody was deluded enough to think that there's any such thing as complete objectivity. We'd all read post-structuralist, post-modern critiques of, the, of the, the notion of total neutrality or objectivity. But nevertheless, um, it, is, it is a valuable and a valid uh, concern to, to, to try to suspend as much as possible one's own particular uh, religious perspective, uh, particularly in the teaching of religion, uh, particularly in a context where you're not, say, in a seminary and in and as it were, preaching to the converted. So, I mean, I came out of grad school quite intent on keeping my practitioner life, such as it was, uh, completely separate from my life as a scholar and particularly as a teacher. Um, And, in fact, I would start my classes, and I did this pretty much through my career, by saying, look, you know, uh, full disclosure, I, I consider myself a Buddhist, and therefore, you all ought to be really sensitive to any, any way in which I might express things that may, may, be, uh, may express unconscious bias on my part. So I, I really tried to, to keep the two separate. And then, interestingly, when I, uh, I, I applied after a couple of years uh, of teaching to a job at Fairfield University, which is a Jesuit school, and when I went for the interview, they were... They, they were very enthusiastic about the fact that I was actually something like a practicing Buddhist. They wanted to, as it were, be in dialogue with a, quote, real Buddhist. And uh, it, was, it was at that point that I think I began to see that the lines uh, couldn't be kept, that I had to blur them a bit. And uh, the, the Buddhist theology volume, which you mentioned uh, at the outset, which I co-edited uh, with my friend John McCransky, uh, was really a, a, a volume in which people who were Buddhist scholars tried to make a case for doing uh, constructive Buddhist 
thought in the academy, and this is not something, you know, it, it had been long since been accepted that, oh, Christians and Jews could, could do this as, as scholars and academicians, but nobody really had justified it fully uh, in terms of Buddhism. And so our Bhagavan was an attempt to, to sort of lay out a charter for that and to provide essays that, that move that forward. Oh, I didn't know that. So, that's, a, that that's interesting. Yeah, so it, it you know, I, I'd say that it, I became more and more comfortable over the years with this idea. Let me also say, however, and this is something that a number of us have sort of ruefully observed, uh, those who are sort of in my generation, that we really didn't feel entirely comfortable doing this kind of, uh, as it were, insider Buddhist scholarly and, and theological work until we had tenure. So <laughs> it shows you that there was, there, was, there was still lingering in the academy some discomfort with that kind yeah. of thing, and that's, you, you still find that in the Religious Studies Academy, in fact. Uh, okay, but, that's what uh, I was just going to ask, if, there, if that's, that's yeah. still a, a, an issue. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry to hear yeah. it, but um, but that's yeah, you well, know, it is what it is. It, but it is a tricky one because uh, people who come in as, if you will, apologists for the tradition, mm -hmm. um, you know, don't too often they are uninterested in or not knowledgeable about critical ways of thinking. I mean, I, I see, you know, you, you kindly said that you you thought the book struck a fairly nice balance between the kind of scholarly point of view and the practitioner's point of view. And I should say that when I when I teach uh, at, say, Buddhist centers, which I do, I teach regularly in Minneapolis and there have been a number of other places as well, I, I definitely bring my scholarly persona with me, uh, partly out of the sense that there are probably many people out there who can teach, you know, meditation and ritual far better than I can, but that maybe if I bring some critical perspective to sort of Dharma centers and Dharma practitioners, um, that will help them loosen up a little bit in, in what sometimes can become a, a fairly narrow way of of thinking about things, I, I, and sometimes I, un, uncritical, yeah. Yeah, and I want to just uh, insert that uh, that that's partly the uh, inspiration of our the name of our program, the Mystical Positivist, which is yeah. that yeah. that you know mysticism is a <clears throat> you know a valid subject of study, but um, uh, a little positivist discipline in terms of understanding <laughs> what you can and can't say and what follows from what uh, right. structurally right. is uh, useful. I think very useful for going deeper. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say yeah. also to credit um, the way the volume reads to me is that you're very articulate about uh these surveys of issues uh you know particularly yeah you, uh, you were you were you were uh, sort of downplaying yeah. uh, well, well, that a little bit i thought compared to my appreciation of what you achieved yeah but but, but what i'm what i'm what i want to say is that i was i, I actually particularly when i was uh, focusing on the uh, uh, 16 big questions i i kept thinking you know I, well i wonder how he comes down on these questions <laughs> 
because <laughs> you you sort of warn at the beginning of the chapter that uh, you know your intention wasn't to answer these things, but to sort of raise right. and and and, uh, right. and that if people were looking for answers, they might be a little frustrated. But I was I was sort of interested. It's like, well, how in your practice do you end up? You know, where do you come down on these things in a in a, a certain way? We we may get into that as we talk about some okay. of these issues. Okay, fair enough. But, sure but, but you'll we'll, probably be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not necessarily. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll just say I didn't have that take on okay, it. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> we are different in that way. Uh, right. So, um, yeah. uh, but, you know, why don't we, you know, just to frame for, um, you know, we've been using the term Mahamudra, and you right. you yourself say in the book that uh, it's, it's, a, it's an overloaded term in terms of uh, 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 how it first shows up, but... Uh, how, in terms of what Mahamudra became in the Tibetan tradition, how how would you frame that for uh, people, uh, listeners who may not have as you know as much context? Yeah, well, I would I would say that what Mahamudra became, though it was a fairly long historical process for it to become this, was fundamentally a way of talking about the nature of reality in terms of mind and a set of meditations in which you focus on and come to realize the nature of mind, uh, the nature of this being a tradition that comes out of Mahayana Buddhism, that is the Buddhism that uh, became predominant in East Asia and Inner Asia after it started in India. It's, it's a matter of uh, really... Uh, talking about mind as empty, and emptiness, as some of your listeners will know, and I'm certain you guys know, is a is a key term in in all of Mahayana Buddhist philosophy. It's actually derivative of the earlier Buddhist idea of, of no self, the lack of any permanent, independent, partless self in us or anything. But in the particularly Mahayana context, it's called emptiness. And so the, the purpose of Mahamudra meditation, Great Seal meditation, Great Seal is, is probably the most common translation of Mahamudra, um, the, the purpose is, is to have a direct realization of the emptiness of the mind. But, you know, you say that, and it begs a whole lot of other questions. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, in what way is the mind empty? Uh, and, and Buddhists have spent, you know, Mahayana Buddhists have spent 2,000 years arguing over the meaning of emptiness, which may or may not sound ironic, but there it is. Um, <laughs> A very full argument. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, 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 well, indeed, and, and, and just to, you know, you, you draw this distinction uh, in the book um, to some extent, but um, when we say realize the nature of emptiness or the empty nature yeah. of mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's not exactly a, uh, necessarily a conceptual realization. Um, no, no, that, no there's something more true. profound in, yeah. uh, that's implied in that, right? right? That, that, right. The, that, right. that if you truly, right. if you truly grok or you, you have, you know, uh, that kind of, uh, understanding that the, the claim is that that will foundationally transform you know, a yes. whole way yes. in which our whole being is organized. Yes, absolutely. Because for Mahayana Buddhists in general, certainly for late Indian Buddhists and Tibetan Buddhists, 
the the key to attaining spiritual liberation, enlightenment, if you will, Buddhahood, is a direct realization of emptiness. And in this particular case, it's the mind that is seen to be empty, and it's seen to be empty above all in an experiential sense. That is, you, I mean, the, 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 the meditation procedures, as is typical with many accounts of Buddhist meditation, work their way from a kind of focus, uh, focused meditation, a kind of concentration meditation called shamatha in Sanskrit. Uh, calm abiding is sometimes the translation for this. Uh, followed then, once you have a calm and concentrated mind, by gaining a kind of insight, a direct insight into the actual nature of the mind, which again is empty. And uh, there, it, it should be said that there's, a, you know, sort of coming off your your question, uh, there, there's one of the great topics of debate among Tibetan Buddhists, and not just among Tibetan Buddhists, but Buddhists more generally, is how important an intellectual or philosophical recognition of emptiness is for gaining the direct experiential realization that all Buddhists will agree is the sine qua non for attaining enlightenment. And one of the features, I think it's fair to say, but I don't want to overstate or, or caricature Tibetan traditions, but traditions like the Kagyu, which again focuses a great deal on Mahamudra, or the Nyingma, with its focus on the Great Perfection, or Dzogchen, there tends to be um, a sense that intellectual and philosophical analysis will only get you so far, and there really shouldn't be a, a great focus on it. Um, it does come into play, and, and Lord knows there are great, great uh, Kagyu and Nyingma philosophers, just as in the Sakyapa, but something that sets the Gelug tradition, which, uh, again, should be noted, is the tradition of the Dalai Lama. That's probably what it's best known for. The Gelug tradition is sort of set apart from these other traditions by its much stronger focus on the role of philosophical analysis. Right. There's a kind of a caricature that I've, I've heard from teachers in these traditions over the years where the, uh, say, a, a Kargyupa or a Nyingmapa uh, will, will say, oh, yeah, the, the Gelukas love to debate, they love to philosophize, but they, don't, they never meditate. <laughs> um, and I've heard Gelo teachers say, oh, yeah, the Kargyupas and the Nyingmapas, they all talk about experience and meditation, but they don't know what they're meditating about. So this is, you know, this is the kind of relatively good-natured um, uh, bantering that goes on back and forth. And I, there's, again, these, these are oversimplifications, but it is true that in the Gelo tradition, there is a, a, a strong conviction that uh, one must have a one must go through very careful philosophical training and analysis in order to properly ascertain what the object of meditation is, the object specifically of negation when you're trying to understand emptiness. Right. Uh, so so they do, there's, a, there's certainly a difference of style and approach, and these, these differences actually have their roots in discussions and debates and disagreements in Indian Buddhism, and they, they carry all the way through 
uh, the Tibetan tradition as well. Well, it also extends into other traditions. I've just been reading a biography of St. Francis, and, mm-hmm. and oh my goodness, he was uh, almost almost relentless, not entirely so, but almost relentless in um, abjuring, uh, um, basically, or, or instructing his, uh, his disciples to um, not read, to not learn disputation, mm-hmm. not go to the university, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a mm-hmm. thing, so, sort of thing. So, um, right, but, this, right, but, right. but then, to, to me, I, I'm wanting to take, take us back. We've sort of been looking at the 16th of your 16 uh, in a sense uh, of uh, of your sixteen uh, questions, and I want to take us back to number fifteen is all Mahamudra realization the same i think because mm-hmm. I think that 's a really interesting question if if these different to get back to the Tibetan tradition um, if all these different uh, philosophical approaches within um, Tibet as it was and Tibetan traditions mm-hmm. as they are now uh, mm-hmm. come at Mahamudra so differently, um, Mm -hmm. what can we say about the realization that they're pointing to? Well, it's a difficult question. I mean, one thing to say is that uh, even though you could maybe very broadly characterize the traditions as I have with the, say, the Kagyu and the Nyingma being more experiential and less analytical overall, the Gelukpa being more analytical and, you know, perhaps slightly less experiential. There are, there are within all of these traditions, there are what you might call ecumenical and exclusivist mm. ways of thinking about other traditions. Right. Um, so, you know, not every Nyingmapa, for instance, is, is, is going to uh, think that the Gelugpas um, are just boiling down to the same thing that they're saying in terms of the great perfection. Um, and by the same token, and of course this is a tradition I have more experience with, within the Gaelic, it's very clear that for many centuries there have been more ecumenical and more exclusivist ways of identifying things. And these, you know, let's be honest, part of this has to do with social and political questions of institutional identity. Mm. Um, All religious traditions historically need to, uh, while they always exist within and come from a particular social, political, and and other intellectual matrix, they have to both uh, speak within that general context and distinguish themselves clearly. So, so there's, there's, there's a constant process that you find in religious traditions of, of self-definition over against an other, and then the question of, well, how much, how much do we play up similarity? How much do we play up difference? So this is, this is certainly the case within the Gaelic, and it's interesting that uh, the figure who is the, the, he's not the founder of the Gaelic Mahamudra tradition, but he's the one who committed it to writing. The, the first Panchen Lama, who lived, wrote, wrote his seminal text around 1600, is the one whom I cited before as saying all these traditions come down to the same thing. But later commentators on this from within his own Gaelic tradition, in many cases, uh, were quite suspicious of this statement um, because they, they were sort of Gaelic exclusivists 
and tended to think that the Yingmachas and the Kargyupas couldn't possibly really have that much of the truth. So it's, a, it's not, a, not an easy matter to determine. And, of course, you, you've got the sort of meta question or meta problem here, uh, or perhaps it's the meta irony that everybody will agree, whether they're a, a Gelugpa with a more scholarly inclination or a, a Nyingma or a Kargyupa who's focusing on meditation experience, everybody will agree that, in the end, Mahamudra cannot be expressed uh, so, um, uh, you know, what do, what do you say uh, right. when, when that's the fact? Uh, we, it's, uh, can you even assert the identity of Mahamudra experience when, at, at some level, you can't even express it? This is, of course, the, the classical mystical issue of ineffability, right. uh, which is itself a kind of paradox, as so many people have pointed out. Uh, the great mystics almost invariably state that mystical experience is ineffable, inexpressible, um, and so forth, and then they go on to write volumes about it. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's no well, different. Thank God in for these, metaphor. In these yeah. Indian and Tibetan traditions. But, you know, you actually, uh, just on that point, you mentioned, I think, in your uh, writing that... Uh, uh, there's a case to be made of the ineffability of uh, very ordinary things as well. I mean, yes. uh, I can't really describe the taste of steak. I can, I, I can, I can uh, come up with all sorts of metaphors, but unless mm-hmm. you have that direct experience, we won't know that we're talking about the same thing. And right, and that right. that that sort of to me suggests that. Um, you know, teachings uh, ultimately have to be injunctive in some way because they they're, mm-hmm. they they have to sort of set the stage, um, or take you to the mountaintop or the in the thumb, thunderstorm, hoping that uh, hoping that lightning is <laughs> going to strike. But but that's all yeah. they, that's all they can really do because uh, there's no <laughs> the the experience that we're talking about uh, defies a being captured in words because it's a uh, phenomenal. Right. Right, and uh, you know, I, I think that's true. And there is, but I think there's. It's also true that there's a kind of continuum of ineffability, yeah. uh, such that uh, you know, the, the kind of the taste of steak, or um, you know, the experience of, of, of giving birth if you're a male. Um, you know, none of these can be fully captured, um, and yet they are. In, to one degree or another, significant, and so we find ways to express them. Typically, uh, we will u- use metaphors. It's like this or it's like that, without claiming it's actually that or actually this. Um, but when you get to the question of the experience of ultimate reality, uh, you're, you've, you've, I don't know if you've, you've got at least gone fairly far along this spectrum of ineffability, and you're dealing with, at least from the perspective of the people who have these experiences, is the most important experience you can possibly have. And so, you know, people have often said that the experience of of God, the experience of of the nature of reality, the experience of emptiness, whatever it might be in a given religious tradition, is is really... ineffable in, in maybe the deepest possible way, but because that experience is the most important possible experience you as a human being can have, it absolutely has to be expressed one way or another. So you find metaphors, you find poetry often 
is a way of, of trying to come at this. Um, you find, of course, that theology is another way of, of coming at it. So, so it, you know, it, it's almost like a, a something you'd expect from the uh, a Samuel Beckett play. You know, you, you, I can't say something. I've got to say something. <laughs> that's that's the, the 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 kind of conundrum that the the, the mystic faces in in Tibetan Buddhism and in Indian Buddhism. Uh, all around the world, really. And so, you know, can you, how can you convey to people uh, what this is like? And you can you can only convey what it's like, not what it is. So, uh, so uh, there are many ways uh, that different traditions have p- tried to point to the moon. But, um, mm-hmm. but one of the th- interesting things about your book is that it that Mahamudra is not just about that sort of pointing, but it's also about practice and practices mm-hmm. to which to realize what one is pointing at. Um, mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. Um, can you contextualize that a little bit? Um, so, uh, for for listeners. Well, I mean, I think uh, it's you have to see Mahamudra within the larger context of Buddhist meditative practices. Um, and and I, just a, a brief bracketed note uh, that I, I think many of your viewers and probably you guys as well are, are aware that actually most Buddhists don't meditate. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, tend, we tend to associate Buddhism with meditation because that's how uh, Buddhism, that's one of the important ways in which Buddhism has sort of gotten a foothold in the West. But if you travel to Asia, it quickly becomes evident that at least in the usual sense of the word meditation, most Buddhists are not involved in that, and nor were they expected to be. Mm-hmm. But again, that's just a, a bracket, that's sort of a, a, a footnote. But within the context of Buddhist meditation, I, I alluded to this very briefly before, there is a general uh, pattern whereby um, you will first seek to calm or concentrate the mind on some particular object. This can be anything from your breath to an image of the Buddha uh, to some intellectual topic to uh, sentiments of universal love and compassion, many, many different possible objects of, uh, of meditation for, for focusing your mind. Um, but there always then is an additional type of meditation that needs to be brought to bear once you've got some kind of basic sense of concentration, and that is uh, what what typically is called investigative or analytical meditation. Analytical is not my favorite translation for this this word because it implies that it's nothing but philosophy, perhaps, but it, it, it's more than that. It's a, it's a kind of an investigation into the nature of whatever your object of meditation is. And again, to reiterate, when we're talking about Mahamudra, the great seal, the object of meditation, whether you're trying to calm your mind or realize the nature of reality, is the mind itself, which, you know, in, in a certain sense, this is kind of paradoxical. Uh, there are, in fact, Indian Buddhist philosophers who argue, well, you can't possibly uh, meditate on mind because it's like a sword cutting itself or a fire burning itself. Uh, how can the how can the subject take itself as an object? Um, but there are ways around this, and uh, it's certainly accepted within uh, later Indian and, and Tibetan Buddhist traditions that it is possible 
both to focus the mind on uh, the mind in its regular nature as clear and aware, for instance, um, and to, to go even more deeply into the profoundest nature of the mind as emptiness. Uh, so, so in the, that's the practice in a, in a in its kind of core form. And I think you know I'll speak personally here. I first became, even though I was studying primarily in the Gelug, this very scholarly uh, tradition, I, I, I got interested in Mahamudra early on in grad school, maybe as a kind of counterbalance to all the philosophy and all the scholasticism of the Gelug. You know, you read the Songs of Milarepa, or you read uh, Kargyu Mahamudra manuals, and it just tells you, just you know, drop everything else. Settle into the nature of your own mind. You know, forget about philosophy. Forget about analysis. And there was a part of me that just said, yeah, really, I, I, I love that. And, I, I, um, I can appreciate that so, someone in grad school would have that feeling. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, really. I mean, the, the genesis of this book was, was in grad school and, and sort of the stuff I would read on the side. <laughs> and I wasn't trying to unravel these, uh, these uh, naughty philosophical problems. Um, and, and my point in telling the story on myself is that I think my reaction to Mahamudra was very typical of the way many other Westerners have uh, responded to Mahamudra, have responded to Dzogchen, uh, or the Great Perfection of Enigma, have responded to Zen, and have responded to the way that mindfulness meditation is taught. That is, it appears on the surface to be a sort of non-sectarian, non-ritual, non-culturally bound practice that anybody can do. Hell, everybody's got a mind, presumably, and you just sit there and you you go into the nature of your own mind. Um, but that's a little bit deceptive, and it's, it's wishful thinking on the part of Westerners to, to simply reduce the, any of these practices, whether it's mindfulness or Zen meditation or the Great Perfection or Mahamudra, uh, simply to this, you know, sort of culture-free uh, zone where, where, where you, you really don't have any responsibilities, you don't have to have any commitments, you don't have to have devotion, you don't have to do prostrations. And yet, when you read the text or visit the communities in which these things matter, it's very clear that these exist within a profoundly religious context. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just give you one example. One of, the, one of the real difficulties that Westerners have in dealing, I would say, particularly with Zen and with Tibetan Buddhism, is the centrality and role of the religious teacher, the, the oh, yeah. master, if you will, the Roshi in Zen, the Lama in Tibetan Buddhism, and all of everybody out there is, is all too well aware of some of the abuses of power that we have seen in teachers, both Asian and Western, particularly as associated with these traditions. But it, it is nevertheless the fact that virtually every pre-modern Mahamudra <clears throat> text you will ever see frames the practice within something called Guru Yoga. Mm -hmm. This is this is a, a yoga of devotion to the guru, and there's many ways one can understand guru devotion. And I I think Westerners often are much too literal in the way they regard this. Tibetans are actually much more relaxed about a lot of it. 
uh, maybe because it's just part of their culture. Mm -hmm. But in any case, uh, there is a ritual, uh, sorry, there is a devotional element to this. There is a ritual element to this. I mean, meditation, after all, is a ritual in, in certain respects. And when you look at the way or read about the way Mahamudra is practiced, uh, you read these manuals, it's very clear that this, there is a ritual and a devotional setting for this. And in that sense, this is more of a, quote, religious practice right. than I think many Westerners will want to well, admit. But we, I think we can uh, explore that in the second part of the show. We, uh, we just hit our break point, so we're going to... Uh, mm -hmm. Take a quick break. So uh, what I'll do is turn you over to uh, Rob on the phone, and uh, I'll do some announcements, and we'll get, we'll get back shortly. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Roger R. Jackson, a retired professor of Asian studies and religion who has published many articles on philosophy, ritual, meditative practices, and poetry in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. He has written or co-edited several books, including Is Enlightenment Possible? In his latest book, Mind Seeing Mind, Mahamudra and the Galuk Tradition of Tibetan Buddhism. We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Add Colors to My Sunset Sky by Danish harpist Trina Opsal. This piece is called Today Will Be Forever.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Uh, I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Rob Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Roger R. Jackson, a retired professor of Asian studies and religion who has published many articles on the philosophy, ritual, meditative practices, and poetry of Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. He has written or co-edited several books, including Is Enlightenment Possible? And his latest book is Mind Seeing Mind, Mahamudra and the Gluk Tradition of Tibetan Buddhism from Wisdom Publications. So uh, at the end of the uh, last hour, uh, we were talking about the, um, in a sense, a devotion aspect that comes up in um, uh, the guru relationship. and. Mm -hmm. One of the things I noticed that was uh, an interesting um, uh, uh, observation in the way that you were framing the big questions at the end of the book is that there was this um, um, kind of uh, two sides of every question. And w one of the questions that came up in the in the section on uh, what's the nature of emptiness or what what is the mind empty mm -hmm. of was the notion of affirming versus non-affirming negation. And actually, uh, despite the uh, uh, seemingly abstract nature of that, it actually, I think, uh, lands very much in the distinction between devotion and reason. And, mm -hmm. I'm, and I'm interested if you could just uh, frame for uh, briefly what affirming versus non-affirming negation is and why, that's, uh, why that was a cause of such distinction in the Tibetan tradition. Hmm. Okay, I'll do my best with it. Um, so uh, to, to reiterate the, the key realization for any Mahayana Buddhist is the realization of emptiness. But to say things are empty is only the beginning of a story. You, you have to ask yourself, okay, what are they empty of? In what sense are they empty? Because certainly the philosophy of emptiness, like the earlier Buddhist idea of no self, is not nihilistic in the slightest. There is an affirmation of the conventional world in one way or another. Anyway, uh, starting with the Indian tradition and then uh, becoming uh, even more acutely uh, worked out in the Tibetan tradition, there were there were two different lines of thinking about how things were empty. And and in particular, it's important to see that that the the mind itself, which is of course the object of Mahamudra meditation, is the topic of Mahamudra discourse, it's the mind itself that makes this a very tricky matter. Um, <clears throat> so there are classically in, in Indian philosophy two different types of negation. It's not just Buddhist, it's found in Hindu thought as well. Um, and these are typically translated, um, you'll get various versions of this, but typically it'll, they'll be called uh, non-affirming and affirming negation. Uh, the, uh, an obvious example of a non-affirming negation is there is no elephant in this room, period. That's, that simply negates the fact that there's, uh, there's the possibility that there's any elephant in the room. Uh, an affirming negation, this is perhaps a little bit trickier, is a negation that nevertheless implies some positive state. And the, the, the classic example of this among Indian philosophers is the fat Devadatta does not eat during the day. Well, if he's fat, he's presumably eating, 
And therefore, it, we have to infer from that or we have to realize that, oh, he eats at night. So that the, this is just very quick and dirty examples of, of, of how these negations work. Now, in terms of Mahamudra and, and in particular meditation on the nature of mind, the the non-affirming approach, which is the in fact the approach taken in the Gaelic school, um, and, and is is essentially that everything in the cosmos, as as Buddhists like to say, from form all the way up to omniscience. So that includes even the completely enlightened mind is empty in exactly the same way. It is empty in the sense of lacking, that it, that it is not permanent, partless, independent, self-sufficient, existing from its own side. Um, another way of putting this, perhaps, is that all things are interdependent. All things are dependent on other things, uh, or they're made up of parts, or they're dependent, perhaps, on our conceptual constructions. Um, and that everything, including Buddha mind, uh, is empty in exactly that same way. So to say that the mind is empty, to realize that the mind is empty in the Gelug system of Mahamudra, is simply to realize, first analytically and then directly, experientially, that there, that the mind lacks any kind of independence, permanence, partlessness, and so forth. So that's the non-affirming uh, negation approach. The, uh, the affirming negation approach, which is more typically found in, say, the Kagyu and the Nyingma, uh, is, makes a kind of a distinction uh, between the way ordinary things are empty, which goes roughly along the lines that I've just described. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, the, the chest of drawers that I'm looking at right now is empty in the sense that it, it, it came about through causes and conditions, it's made up of parts, and it depends in certain respects for its existence on my designation of it as a chest of drawers. So that's, you know, that, that, that's, that's, that's the non-affirming negation way, uh, which, the, which those in the New Man Kargi will, will accept as well. The, the crucial matter is, but what is Buddha mind empty in the same way? And here, going way back into the Indian Mahayana tradition, uh, to, to various articulations of emptiness that run along particular philosophical lines associated with a, a school called the Yogacara, uh, the sort of mind-only school, it's actually asserted that when we're talking about Buddha mind, what we're really talking about, uh, when we talk about the emptiness of Buddha mind, we're talking about it being empty of anything worldly or samsaric, but implicitly, Buddha mind contains within it all the perfected Buddha qualities. Um, so, so that's the affirmation that is implied by the negation of anything worldly, because worldly samsaric things are, in effect, uh, radically different from the, the nature of Buddha mind itself. So, you know, to bring that back uh, to, to your point about sort of analysis and, and, and faith or philosophy and faith, um, it, it's true that um, the, the non-affirming negation approach, which, which often goes under the name of, of self-emptiness, a technical term in Tibetan philosophy, 
that that approach is somewhat more analytical. And it's also true that the affirming negation approach, which sometimes goes under the name of other emptiness in Tibetan philosophy, does tend to be more affirmative and, and somewhat more positive. If, if, if we were to draw an analogy uh, with movements, say, in Christian mysticism, you might say that the uh, the non-affirming negation approach, the Gaelic approach, is, is a little bit more like the apophatic approach of somebody like Meister Eckhart or Dionysus the Areopagite, whereas the affirming negation approach of the Nyingma and the Kagyu is a little bit more like the cataphatic uh, approach to God that we might find in, say, St. John of the Cross or Teresa of Avila or Bernard of Clairvaux. So there, there is a, you know, there is something to that. But again, I want to reiterate that, um, you know, for the Gelugpas, even though they have this rather more analytical approach, even though they think about emptiness as strictly a, a non-affirming negation, faith, ritual, all these matters do come into it. So we can't, uh, we, we have to be careful about oversimplifying. And again, to, to reiterate as well that, even though you might say that uh, there is a, a more natural connection to faith and to the positive description of ultimate reality in the affirming negation approach of the Kagyu and the Gelo, uh, sorry, the, the Kagyu and the Nyingma, nevertheless, there, there are profound philosophical wells within those traditions as yeah. well. And just very quickly before uh, uh, I turn it over to Rob, it's like it's almost as though those two uh uh poles re just represent different lenses and, yeah. and and the ultimate truth is uh is not either of them it's kind of like the right. wave or the particle and and they're mm -hmm. bo they're both useful and we can build on them but but what we're looking at is beyond either of those kinds of uh distillations yeah i mean that certainly would be the the perspective that anybody who is ecumenically inclined would take. Others who, who take philosophical differences very, very seriously. Um, oh, you mean would, there are such people? Not necessarily go along with that. <laughs> well, let me let me then bring it to uh, uh, one of the interesting discussions you have uh, in in the book, where you ask the question: Is there a place for devotion in Mahamudra? Mm -hmm. uh, because I think. Um, um, just in terms of the, the forms of negation that you were just discussing, um, it would be easy to conclude that that uh, Mahamudra um, is um, a sort of uh, negative space, and and mm -hmm. and that devotion would not really come into it. And yet, you were, you were saying before the break, uh, you were talking about Guru Yoga. So so discuss mm -hmm. that uh, for our listeners a uh, moment, if you will. Yeah. Well, again, um, it, it's important to understand, we haven't really talked about this particularly, but the, the context out of which Mahamudra arises in the Indian tradition is the, is the tradition of Tantra, uh, which is, of course, an esoteric form of Buddhism, though it's found as well in Hinduism and Jainism and, and other uh, Indian religions as well. Um, in all Tantric traditions, uh, which uh, maybe maybe this isn't the place to, to get into a definition of tantra, uh, but but I would I, the one thing I would say is that uh, a key element of tantra wherever you find it is the notion of 
transformation of ourselves into the divine. Um, and in order to do this, you can't just sit down and read a book, uh, nor can you simply sit down and listen to a lecture. Uh, you have to receive a, an initiation or an empowerment from a guru, from a spiritual master who himself or herself is sufficiently experienced that they can convey to you uh, both the energy of a particular religious lineage and practical instructions on how you do this. So the term Mahamudra first appears in tantric texts in sort of late first millennium India. So in that sense, uh, Mahamudra as a term that eventually comes to mean the nature of reality and meditation on the nature of reality, particularly as a, with the mind as an object, never loses that, that sort of tantric basis that it has, even though there are big debates in, in Tibet about whether there is even a, a, a Mahamudra that isn't tantric, and we don't need to get into that particularly, but, but the, uh, the, the centrality of the guru in esoteric or tantric traditions is never is, is missing with Mahamudra. And again, it's simply a matter of of the the guru being the one who gives you access to these, you know, remarkable, uh, often very rapid ways of attaining spiritual liberation. So uh, anybody who has studied with traditional Tibetan Buddhist teachers will know that the one of the very first things you learn is about devotion to the guru. Um, and appreciation for what for what the guru brings to you, what the guru gives to you, um, and, and as I remarked before, of course, um, even in Tibet, but I, I would say even more so in the West, this this is a complicated matter, uh, sociologically, psychologically, sometimes politically, and and in various other ways, um, um, and yet it is still at the heart of Mahamudra as it is traditionally taught. And you, you will very rarely find even Western-trained teachers of Mahamudra um, who will not include guru devotion as, as a kind of beginning point for this. Um, and, it, you know, to, to be very specific about it, um, what typically is involved, because, again, this is, is all done within a kind of ritual framework, as I described before, so not much detail, um, it, it, it will involve, for instance, the visualization of your guru, whoever that might be. And, you know, if you don't have a particular guru, there are other ways you can go about this. Uh, but nevertheless, the visualization of your guru appealing to your guru um, for assistance in your meditative practice, and usually then uh, a visualization of the guru coming to the crown of your head and absorbing into you and melting into your heart chakra, uh, your heart center, which for Tibetan Buddhists, as for many others, is, is where the mind really resides, in such a way that your mind and the guru's mind are indissolubly fused. And it's at that point, then, that you enter into the actual Mahamudra meditation. Again, first on the kind of conventional nature of the mind, I'm, I'm describing this from the Gala perspective now, uh, as, again, clear and aware. And then, once that's been established, 
uh, undertaking a brief analytical meditation to arrive at the recognition that the mind itself is empty of any intrinsic existence. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's the, that's the kind of uh, the practical and ritual context in which Guru Yoga and Mahamudra meditation are, are connected. But anybody who has read in and out of Tibetan literature, uh, particularly, uh, for instance, verse literature, songs and poems, will know that almost every text begins with a salutation to or celebration of the guru. It's, it's, it's a ritual move, but in this, the context of this meditation, it's a, it's a very, very important element of it. And, and, you know, you have to ask the question, if you just sat down and said, okay, I'm going to enter the, I'm going to relax into the nature of my mind now, and it were not within the context of guru devotion, well, how, how, how much is that really Mahabhudra? I mean, that's a cultural question and a historical question, maybe. But um, um, anyway, one perhaps worth asking. Well, you've been you've been talking about uh, ritual and and just just the way you described um, the attainment of Mahamudra um, a moment ago uh, suggests that rit- ritual is one of the tools um, that's used, um, and yet you also have a have a in in. Um, in your discussion, you also uh, make a distinction between ritual and ritualism. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can uh, draw that out for us, because I think that's a very important important one. That you know, uh, um, we have a, a, a spiritual bookstore, and and mm-hmm. um, from ta- and we have talks generally every week by people from different traditions, and and every once in a while, there's a, there's someone who comes in and thinks you can just um, make up an effective ritual um, with relative ease, and I haven't seen that being very effective. <laughs> but um, uh, um, but elucidate, if you will, this distinction between ritual and ritualism. Yeah. Well, I guess the first thing I would say is that ritual is something that pervades all of our lives in various ways in the broadest sense of the term. I mean, this is something that uh, ethnographers and anthropologists have been particularly good at uh, analyzing perhaps some psychologists as well. But we, if you think of ritual in a very broad sense as sort of regular patterns of behavior that have particular aims to them, mm-hmm. you know, anything from uh, brushing your teeth at particular times of the day uh, to having a weekly phone call with a friend uh, to attending a Catholic Mass, all in their regularity, um, and their purposiveness have have elements of ritual. So that's in, in, in the very broad sense. Um, I would say that in the more specific sense, in the context of something like Buddhism, um, you know, you have to understand ritual as as. Uh, and I think Tibetans will often articulate this, maybe not in quite the way I'm doing so, but that ritual is the involvement of mind and speech, and body in some kind of spiritual practice aimed at transformation. And so if we think, for instance, about uh, prostrating to an image of the Buddha, if we think about chanting a liturgy or saying prayers, and if we think about placing the mind into a particular meditative state, all these uh, are, are ritual in one way or another. And if 
properly understood and properly practiced, they have tremendous power. Because it's one thing to just think about the nature of reality, but to to articulate it vocally, to to enact something related to it in a physical sense, all these are deepen the impression and make the practice, the meditative practice, that much more efficacious. Ritualism, then, is it's still repeated practice of particular bodily, vocal, and mental actions for some kind of purpose, but the it, it's done in a kind of blind and unthinking way. Uh, you know, and I think all, all of us have have sort of been ritualistic about certain types of behavior we have where we're going through the motions of something but aren't sincerely committed to it. And and this is something that, you know, religious people in general have certainly um, noted and, and criticized. Luther, after all, was partly uh, protesting against the ritualism of the Roman Catholic Church. And within Buddhism, in fact, and within specifically Tantric Buddhism, even, and Tantric Buddhism is quite ritualistic in many regards, um, some of the great masters of Mahamudra in India, and then in Tibet as well, but particularly in India, these great figures known as the Mahasiddhas, the great Tantric adepts, were often were deeply critical of ritualism. It doesn't mean that in their lives they didn't practice rituals, but what they were opposed to was just sort of doing things in a rote manner. So that that would be one way in which I, w- I would think about that in general and in particular application to Mahamudra. Thank you. Um, the, uh, another topic, at least uh, partially related here, is the, um, I think, very important question of ethics. Um, I mean, in the, in the whole of Buddhism, ethics are are important and in um mahamudra um there's there's as i understand it uh, from your book a lot of debate about how how to understand um the role of um ideas of and ethical systems in the practice of mahamudra and what the relationship of the um uh, of the adept is to ethics um, mm-hmm. In this in this context, so um, yeah, uh, t- talk about that if you will a bit because because uh, I think there are a lot of shallow interpretations uh, that uh, people are drawn to who have a, a relatively sh- um, not very deep experience of of Buddhism or mm-hmm. or Buddhist uh, uh, practice and imagine that they can sort of jettison ethics um, all too readily. Right. Right. And I think um, here the the kind of root problem is found in the the kind of discourse, or you might say the rhetoric. Uh, It's what uh, the scholar Bernard Faure called the rhetoric of immediacy that you find in some Buddhist traditions. Zen Mm. is, is particularly symptomatic of this, and various forms of tantric Buddhism are symptomatic of this as well, uh, but it, it goes. It, it, it's rooted, in fact, in the in the fundamental scriptures of the Mahayana tradition, the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, mm-hmm. of which the most famous is the the so-called Heart Sutra, with its you know famous slogan: "Form is emptiness, emptiness is form." Right. 
um, there is a, a style of rhetoric that is adopted in Mahayana Buddhism uh, that is is very negative uh, in 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 its manner of talking about reality, and the the negative rhetoric extends not just to you know kind of classical themes like like desire and anger and ignorance. It extends as well to uh, the various uh, kind of characteristics of phenomena as described by early Buddhists. Um, and it even goes so far then as to negate, as to say there is, as, as to state the emptiness of distinction, you know, something like the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism or, or enlightenment or ethical distinction. And it's this it's this uh, affirmation or this this denial of any of these categories that is very easy to misunderstand and and to be taken as giving one complete license uh, to you know is sort of this the old Dostoevsky thing right if God is dead then everything is permitted if everything is empty then everything is permitted um, that's that's a literal reading of these texts, but it, it, it betrays a, a complete understand, misunderstanding of them. But the point of this, uh, of this kind of rhetoric, you know, which extends down the Zen koans, like, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, it's a, you know, sort of an extension of the same way of talking, is that we can only gain spiritual liberation if we have a direct realization of emptiness. Because unless we understand emptiness and realize that we are going to continue to circle in samsara, the, the, the cycle of rebirth, uh, because we are driven by desire and anger and ignorance. And ignorance is the, is the worst of the poisons that keep us in samsara, because we ignorantly believe that we have or are or there somehow exists a permanent, heartless, independent self. As long as we believe in that self, we're going to try to get things for it, we're going to try to defend it against real or imagined enemies, and we create actions, i.e. karma, which lead to predictable results, which result in continuing suffering, both in this life and, according to Buddhists anyway, in future lives. So we have to undermine this belief in self, and uh, the self belief in self is a very subtle thing. It's not just a matter of, uh, of being, you know, being able to say, "Oh, that chest of drawers is is empty." Um, there are concepts that we can get hooked onto too. And if we if we hang on to anything, if we're attached to anything intellectually or emotionally, then that's that's simply that's an obstacle in the way to enlightenment. So this was the kind of radical approach of these perfection of wisdom sutras, and you know, particularly then of the Zen tradition and the Tantra traditions, which was to was to get you, to kind of shake you out of your complacency. Oh yes, I'm a I'm a bodhisattva on the way to full enlightenment. Well, these texts will assure you there is no bodhisattva, there is no enlightenment, but it doesn't mean that in some sense there isn't, because you know, a very a crucial distinction within Buddhism is a distinction between two levels of truth, um, an ultimate truth in which everything is empty, everything is negated, 
and the conventional everyday truth in which, oh, yes, we are deluded beings, we need to practice dharma, and at the end of that, there is something like enlightenment. Uh, so, so that's uh, at least one way of coming at that. Uh, and, and, and therefore, to bring it back to the point about ethics, even though, um, you know, on, on the ultimate level, there is no good or evil, uh, these are just dualistic distinctions, in the conventional sense, <laughs> and we are still conventionally bound beings, if we do good things, good karma, good results will, will ensue. If we do negative things, negative results will ensue. So it doesn't, the, the ultimate level negation of these kinds of things does not at all negate the conventional validity of them. In fact, according to the Galo tradition, uh, basing themselves on the great philosopher Nagarjuna, it's precisely because things are empty on an ultimate level that the conventional world can operate in the way that it does and that ethics are applicable and valid. Well, thank you for that. For, for that. that was very clear. Um, the, and the other point that you bring up in the book and that uh, I've uh, thought about as well is, is that all these uh, debates and discussions are generally um, arising, not always, but often arising in monastic contexts. Mm-hmm. And, and and obviously in a monastic context, there's already a, a, a strong ethical foundation, presumably mm-hmm. enforced yeah. in one, in various ways. So that's yes. an important additional point there. Yes, no, that's a very important point. And uh, there even you know in the in the Indian tantra context in particular, though you would find this in Tibet now and again as well, uh, there were certainly figures who though while essentially monastic, would break away from that um, and live uh, kind of uh, um, lives that, that went, were, in, in the profoundest sense, countercultural or, or even transgressive. Uh, but I think it's often, often people fail to recognize that this is within the larger context of an ethically disciplined life, yeah. and that there may come a time when you've got to sort of go wilding, as it were. Um, and and the, the, the purpose of that, however, is not indulgence, because you actually have to be very disciplined to engage in these sometimes transgressive practices. Um, the, the purpose of them is, is to make you, in a very visceral way, overcome your, your sense of what's pleasant and disgusting, for instance. Right. Um, so, so there are... You know, there, there definitely are issues there, and 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 and, and there are practices that uh, do go against the grain of classical monasticism, and and there were tensions over many centuries, uh, both within and outside the monasteries, over the place these kinds of practices ought to have. And again, this this whole idea, which is uh, that that you know, spiritually advanced practitioners can in a way, go beyond ordinary ethics, beyond good and evil, you know, to, to take Nietzsche's phrase. Um, this, this was problematic even in the Indian and Tibetan traditions. And, and when, when masters would behave in seemingly bizarre ways, there, were, there was sometimes uncertainty as to how to react to this. Mm. Uh, is this simply an example of skillful spiritual techniques? 
for the sake of disciples who need to be shaken out of their complacency, or in some cases, is it is it actually uh, misguided and abusive? And again, you know, as, as I've commented a couple of times before, this issue of sort of skillful means by the teacher has become uh, particularly painful and germane in, in certain Western Buddhist contexts over the last several decades. Well, that, but, that... but fundamentally, the point is, yes, uh, ethics is, is very deeply a part of this. Um, well, since you, you you kind of alluded to the uh, Western challenges, uh, we just have a few minutes left, but I'm just kind of interested mm-hmm. uh, how you see then uh, the the uh, Mahamudra as it's landed into the West, and with all the uh, conflicts, cultural uh, 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 you know dissonances and things like that from the original mm-hmm. Tibetan context in which these practices were elaborated, how do you see how do you see mm-hmm. Mahamudra moving forward? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I earlier talked about my own initial attraction to it as, as something that was kind of non-intellectual, non-culturally bound, non-ritualistic, didn't require faith and so forth, uh, all of which turn out then, once you begin to dig into it, to be untrue. Um, but I think that remains... Um, a part of the part of the real appeal of it for many Westerners, um, just as uh, I commented on this before, Dzogchen or the Great Perfection in the Yingma tradition often uh, seems appealing for the same reasons. It seems to, in its rhetoric and its style of discourse, to go beyond cultural boundaries. And if you're worried about sort of trying to do a quote Tibetan practice suddenly it, it seems to be something approachable to you. And, and again, this is, I think this is very similar to what you find with Zen in the West as well. If you spend time in a Zen monastery in Japan, there, there's actually a, a, a profoundly ritual setting that it's a part of. And I think this is uh, even, perhaps even more, uh, but, but, but Westerners, and I, you know, my first attraction to Buddhism was actually to Zen, reading the essays of D.T. Suzuki mostly, um, who who really kind of dehistoricized and decontextualized Zen to try to make it appealing to the Western mind. He was a great scholar, don't get me wrong, but his mode of presentation uh, took away all those kind of cultural and uh, and uh, ritual elements to it. And you know, I think, but I think the, the the clearest example of this probably is what you might call the mindfulness movement, where a particular practice that itself is part of a movement that only goes back a couple of centuries has become um, a centerpiece of the way people think about Buddhism in the West. And it's it's important to see that a that the, the mindfulness movement in Southeast Asia was within a very specifically Buddhist ritual context. Granted, it went back to the beginnings of the tradition, but it's a modern movement as well. And then the way it has been distilled, both by Asian teachers and by Western teachers, as kind of the, the quintessence of Buddhist practice, um, those ritual, devotional, and other traditional elements tend to fall away. And this is, of course, most evident in something like mindfulness-based stress reduction, right. MBSR, which, of course, has... Uh, become a very popular and effective 
uh, technique in all sorts of therapeutic set- settings, in in prisons, in in other in other uh, you know sort of parts of of standard society. Um, and the only reason it's been acceptable in those contexts is precisely because the religious element, even the Buddhist element, is is, is almost invisible there. Um, so so there are there are tricky issues uh, in that regard. But you know I I, I I'm certainly I'm not a cultural conservative, particularly. I'm, I, I think I would not necessarily say that um, if you simply just sit there and try to be with your nature, of, be with the nature of your mind, it's not Buddhist. Uh, nor would I say that that there's anything wrong with something like MBSR. Um, it's it's a way of presenting practices that are rooted in Buddhism. Uh, that that seems to have uh, seems to be some scientific evidence anyway that that it has some actual value in social and you know psychological settings both for individuals and groups. Uh, but but the, but the key here, I mean, I, I'll go back to something that one of my grad school professors, uh, Stephen Beyer, once said. He said that the degree to which Buddhism will succeed in the West is the degree to which it becomes a kind of psychotherapy. Hmm. And I think that was an oversimplification in, in various ways, but there, I, I think, and he said that 40-odd years ago to me, and I think I think that the success that Buddhism has had, and I, it's quite remarkable in many respects, is to the degree that the, the deeply cultural and perhaps deeply, quote, religious elements of Buddhism get downplayed to the point where you have many people saying, well, Buddhism isn't really a religion, it's just a, it's a philosophy, or it's a, it's a way of life. Um, historically, that's an inaccurate statement, but who can say what Buddhism will become? It's, uh, uh, you know, it's not up to any, any of us individually, it's, a, it's part of a complex cultural process of the, the sort of transference or transmission of a tradition from one culture right. and to I, another. I guess it's fair to say also it, it took um, a few centuries for Buddhism in China to really coalesce into uh, right. uh, Chan. Right. Uh, so we, we, we're, right. we're in the very early days, so we, we, exactly. <laughs> we really have no idea. Point. And, and sh- yeah, and China is the perfect example because their, uh, Buddhism sort of penetrated various Asian societies in various ways and with various degrees uh, at a various speeds. And the, the general pattern was that in societies that, for instance, didn't have full literacy, that didn't have a long and deep historical and ideological tradition, Buddhism tended to be a, a kind of, a, you know, a, a almost like a, quote, civilizing force, or at least this yeah. is the way it was regarded by people in these societies. Sri Lanka and Tibet are actually examples of this. China is a very different sort of example. By the time Buddhism arrived in China, there were 2,000 years of history, two, two or more great religious traditions, and Buddhism had a very difficult time insinuating itself into China. And to the degree that it did, yes, it, of course, it affected Chinese society and ideas and practices, but to the degree that it succeeded, it adapted significantly to Chinese traditions. And I think the West is probably more along the Chinese line, that, yeah. that Buddhism, again, will succeed to the degree that Westerners who, say, may not believe literally in something like rebirth or traditional descriptions of enlightenment still 
can uh, resonate with and articulate for themselves and others uh, the, the kind of classical, traditional Buddhist ways of, of thinking and, and being. Got it. Well, we... we... We're, we're pretty much at our uh, time for uh, this session, but we really appreciate uh, the conversation. And uh, there's so much more we could uh, continue on. No, no. Well, thank you. I, I really uh, appreciate talking to both of you. And well, thank you. I appreciate it's... your looking at the book. <laughs> well, thank you. And, 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 and you know, as a final comment about the book, I, I say it, it's it's so wonderfully clearly written, which is something that um, for such a complex topic oh, is, yeah. is, is, is a requirement for it to have the effect that I, I hope it will mm. and expect it will have. So um, congratulations on yeah, it. It's Thank a, you. It's, Thank a, you. it's a great work, and uh, we hope to have you back on the show sometime. We'd uh, exactly. like to continue well, would, the conversation. I would enjoy that. Thank, thank you so much. Excellent. And, uh, well, I'm going to turn you over to, to you. I'm going to turn you over to Rob just to uh, wrap up offline. But thank you for joining us on the uh, Mystical okay. Positivist. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Stuart. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I have been speaking by telephone with Roger R. Jackson, a retired professor of Asian Studies and Religion, who has published many articles on the philosophy of uh, ritual, meditative practices, and poetry of Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. He has written and co-edited several books, including Is Enlightenment Possible?, and his latest book that we've been talking about is Mind Seeing Mind, Mahamudra and the Galug Tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, published recently by Wisdom Publications. Next week on the show, we'll have an encore presentation, uh, but uh, so join us for that on Saturday, February 1st from 4 to 6 p.m., and in two weeks, we'll have our friend Stephen Aronson back to talk more about some of the uh, Fourth Way tradition of which he's been a long-term practitioner. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, the Thursdays at Many Rivers event in Sebastopol next week is Spiritual Ecology in Action with Jennifer Wilhoyt, author of Writing on the Landscape and Weaned Seals and Snowy Summits. That's Thursday, January 30th at 7.30 p.m. Gain insight into what it means to nurture one's written expression through natural landscapes and ecological images, as well as to enrich one's time in wild places through insightful writing and beauty-making rituals. Draw from more than two decades and exploration on seven continents, a multidisciplinary spiritual ecologist, published author, hospice volunteer, will share stories about how she compassionately nurtures the inner outer landscape in her professional work and personal life through the lens of spiritual ecology. She will also share relevant passages from her two newest books, Writing on the Landscape, Essays and Practices to Write, Rome, Renew, that's 2017, and Weaned Seals and Snowy Summits, Stories of Passion for Place and Everyday Nature, that's 2019, co-authored with S.B. Jones. Jennifer Wilhoyt, Ph.D., is a published author, spiritual ecologist, consultant, hospice worker, and the founder of T. Arbor stories, Teal Arbor, Teal Arbor stories. She compassionately supports people's creative and healing processes by drawing from nature's wisdom. Jennifer offers courses, training, individualized mentorship, and retreats focused on human nature relationship. She collaborates with the Charter for Compassion and is an active and is active in global interface initiatives, including presenting her work at the Parliament of the World's Religions and the World Interfaith Harmony Week. On Friday, January 31st at Many Rivers, as part of an 
ongoing class uh, that has started in January, Angels the Native Way with Native Californian healer Trina Vega. That's uh, Fridays from 7.15 to 9.15 p.m., uh, next one January 31st, but then also February 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th. Trina writes, I have experienced angels my entire life of a short journey on earth of 62 years. I will assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. I will also include hearing from past loved ones. Let's start off a new year with opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. Please contact me at 707-391-7373, and I'll be more than happy to answer any questions. Many blessings. Trina Vega. Trina Vega is a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from Native Grandmother Ocean to Healing with the Angels. She's an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30-plus years. She's the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. Thank you for joining us once again for the Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Add Colors to My Sunset Sky by Danish harpist Trina Opsal. This piece is called Rosebed Garden. Enjoy. Enjoy.